Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Marianne Tupi, and I'm a uh, policy analyst uh, here at Cato. Today, Americans go to the polls to cast their votes in primaries that may well determine the GOP and Democratic nominees for the White House in the fall. Many will be interested in the outcome of the battle between Senators Clinton and Obama. Obama's rise, and some might say Obama mania, is especially interesting. Obama has fashioned himself as the man of change who says it as it is. But in a recent column in the Washington Post, Robert Samuelson disagreed with such a characterization. According to Samuelson, Obama's campaign is mostly unresponsive to many pressing national problems, offering standard goodie bag politics, something for everyone. A truth-telling candidate, Samuelson believes, might say something like this. Spending for retirees, mainly Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid, is nearly half of the federal budget. Unless we curb these rising costs, we will crush our children with higher taxes. Of course, Obama is not the only candidate who is not addressing the real issues. Senator Clinton's proposal might, in fact, be even more ruinous to the long-term health of the federal budget. Is it possible for politicians to tell the truth and get elected? Our first speaker has written a book, The Guide to Reform, that argues that market reform and re-elections are possible, and I am delighted to welcome him to the Cato Institute. Johnny Munkhammer is an analyst, writer, and commentator specializing in economic and political affairs. He holds a master's degree in political science and is the managing director of Munkhammer Advisory. He is affiliated with several think tanks, such as Timbro in Sweden and European Enterprise Institute in Brussels. He is the author of five books, notably The Guide to Reform and European Dawn After the Social Model, as well as numerous chapters in books and publications, uh, for example, The Urgent Need for Labor Reform in Europe in 2007, Cato's own Index of Economic Freedom that we co-published together with the Fraser Institute in Canada. His other professional experience includes serving as senior advisor for the Confederation of Swedish Enterprise, work as an editorial writer for several smaller Swedish dailies, and as a partner in a public affairs consultancy. He's a member of several societies and networks that engage in international economic and political matters, and appears regularly in the media as a columnist, op-ed writer, and commentator. His primary interest is issues such as free market reforms, European integration, globalization, labor markets, and foreign policy. Johnny, welcome to the Cato Institute. Thanks very much for that, Marianne. Um, very kind introduction. I'm uh, almost impressed by myself when I hear all of that. Um, it's great to be here at the Cato Institute, an institute which I think is uh, very credible and inspirational to all of us. Uh, I look very much forward also to listening to the comments by Dick Army here on this topic. We all know what to do, we just don't know how to get re-elected once we have done it. That's a quote coming from the Prime Minister of Luxembourg, Jean-Claude Juncker. He said that very late at a press conference after an EU summit, and I think he might have thought that no one was listening, but people were. I think in that phrase he captured 
a feeling that I think many politicians have about the dilemma. We know what to do, but we think that we will not get re-elected. So politically, there are disadvantages by doing the kind of free market reforms that we know to be important. So my book, which is, which there are a few copies out there, is dedicated to trying to solve that riddle, that, that kind of mystery. And the purpose of the book is actually to encourage politicians to do more reforms than they're currently doing. And I'm looking basically at the 30 industrialized countries that are members of the OECD, because um, in my view, of course, it's extremely important that the poorer countries in the world today get wealthier, of course. But it's also important that the industrialized nations continue to get wealthier, if not only to pave the way for the others. And I think... Um, also, the advice of my book might be very relevant in the election times in the United States at the moment, because I think the election debate might not be uh, entirely focused on competing who da, for who does the most radical and far-reaching free market reforms. And that is perhaps founded in the notion that it is not politically beneficial. So first of all, there is a strong need to do reforms, to launch a free market reforms. Because, uh, first of all, there's no country that will ever be a utopia. Every country can always improve. And secondly, I think that all of our countries have problems today. We have different problems, but there might be throughout the industrialized world, and not least in Western Europe that I come from, unemployment, social exclusion, poverty, declining or stagnating living standards, lots and lots of problems stemming from the lack of reforms. And so there are, of course, a few future challenges as well, such as the globalized economy and the demographic development in many countries that also stress that we have a need to reform. So we definitely do have a need for reform. And I, I point to numerous sources in the book showing that uh, in research and from international organizations, the need to reform is well established. So with Junkers' words, we know we need to reform. We know what to do. And we also know a lot about what direction reforms should have. My definition of reforms would be political decisions that facilitate change and wealth creation. And I think there's broad support throughout research and international organizations for that kind of direction of reforms. It's basically a free market approach. I know that the word reform was used abused, you might even say, even in the Soviet Union. They said they did reforms. Well, they did, might have done in the end, but most of the things they did were not reforms in the sense that I would point to. I think that reforms should facilitate change and wealth creation, and it's only free market reforms that actually do that. And I think also that if you look at the development, the policy development throughout the Western world, in the first decades after World War II, you could see that there was more and more state, more and more socialism, more and more public intervention in society. And we had, subsequently, lots and lots of problems throughout the 1970s and early 1980s. And then, with the Thatcher and Reagan revolutions, etc., the tide was changing throughout the Western world. We had more and more markets, more and more free economy. And economic freedom has increased ever since throughout the industrialized world. And the industrialized world has now been much more economically and socially successful than it was during the decades of more and more government. So that has been the direction of reform, and that has been the policy direction, with exceptions, naturally, but in the main, main direction, I think, 
for the past decades. And now we can see that if you look at the index of economic freedom, for in the instance, we can see that economic freedom has increased throughout the world in the past decade, and that has been very positive. And we now have a very high economic growth rates. We have falling poverty rates, etc., throughout the world, and this is very positive. Economic prosperity follows economic freedom. And so we have an, an American debate which is focused on should you be more protectionist should there be higher taxes? Should you push out private enterprise from healthcare? And I think that would be, all of that would be a very negative development. And, and also prohibiting immigrants from coming to America would be a very, very negative because all of that would decrease economic freedom and set the United States in a direction of development which would be opposite to most countries in the world. But the question is, if you want to pursue free market reforms such as deregulated labor markets, lower taxes, private enterprises and welfare services, etc., wouldn't that be controversial? Wouldn't you lose the election? Well, there are definitely a number of obstacles to those that want to do that. First of all, I think psychological research shows very well that uh, most of us have a strong sense of risk aversion. That is, that uh, we know what we have, but we don't know exactly what we could have. Meaning that uh, anyone who proposes a change, we would be hesitant to jump on that train because we might fear that we might lose things. Even in the countries such as Marianne Tupi's Czech Republic that actually went from communism and sent the enormous failure of centrally planned economy, even then in those countries, it wasn't really evident that people supported free market reforms. It was just because a couple of bold politicians actually managed to launch free market reforms. But even when the situation was terrible, people were, didn't necessarily support free market reforms because people think that it's bad, but it can get even worse. So we are risk-avert to a large extent. Then you have special interests. You might have a trade unions that want labor market regulations. You might have business organizations that want uh, protectionism. You might have farmers' organizations that want subsidies. All of these have one thing in common. They want one thing from the state paid for by everyone else in society. And, of course, they will resist any attempt to do free market reforms that will take their privileges from them. Another obstacle to free market reforms is the populist media. Because, as you know, throughout the media, they look a lot to the short-term losers and not the long-term winners. You can be sure that if you decrease some kind of contribution to families from the state, then they will find the family with 11 children that will definitely lose a lot of money from that. And they will not see the potential big gains as taxes decrease and more jobs are created. So that's another obstacle. And I could continue. So, and. When I say this, I describe all the obstacles. You think, okay, Juncker was probably right. There are too many obstacles, politically, to actually launch free market reforms. So that is, even though the economic and social arguments speak strongly for it, the political arguments do not. But, and here's my main point, many countries have done a lot. Almost all the industrialized countries have actually reformed in some way. Most of them have introduced better macroeconomic frameworks. Most of them have deregulated some product markets. Most of them have liberalized foreign trade. And then a number of countries have done much more than that. 
Let me just take a few examples. New Zealand, one of the most uh, unsuccessful protectionist countries in the early 1980s, launched a series of free market reforms. Not least did they deregulate the labor market, and they haven't had problem with unemployment since. It's been 2 or 3% every year. Australia, it has 12% of the adult population in entrepreneur entrepreneurial activity, compared to 3% in my home country, Sweden. 12% is very impressive. That followed massive deregulations for entrepreneurship and tax decreases. They create the jobs and goods and services for tomorrow. Spain, a country of 44 million inhabitants, have now in just one decade integrated 3 million immigrants into the labor market. Illegal immigrants were granted amnesty. They were allowed to stay, and they, allowed, they deregulated the labor market, allowing for temporary contracts, so they got jobs. And employment levels are now just as high in those groups as among the native Spaniards. Ireland, once the poorest country in Western Europe, now one of the wealthiest countries in the world, thanks to uh, many reforms, but also a, a cut in corporate tax from 50% to 12%, and tax revenue has increased four times. Average income in Ireland was up 100%, 102% actually, in 10 years. Poverty rates fell sharply. The United Kingdom, of course, during Margaret Thatcher was the first country to turn away from more socialism to more free market. They did many things. One of the things they did was sell off, sell off uh, state-owned companies that were dependent on subsidies. And now many of these, like British Airways, are very successful privatized multinational companies. My home country, Sweden, once known as the beacon of socialism, which it was in the 1970s, and a very problematic country at that time, has since then been one of the most liberalizing countries in the Western world. We have cut tax rates, we have liberated markets, opened foreign trade, etc. We have introduced school vouchers in Sweden and seen a sharp increase in private schools. We have uh, introduced a public pension system which contains the same as in Chile, a part which you can invest freely in, uh, in the uh, stock market. And it has basically diffused the demographic time bomb, promising that taxes for pensions will never increase. It's always the same. You can go to the Netherlands, a country which uh, has also done many reforms, but it has also introduced uh, free competition in healthcare. So now every person in the Netherlands has a private healthcare insurance, choosing between nine insurance companies, and they purchase their services from pri private healthcare providers. So you have choice, you have competition, and now you have increased efficiency and falling prices. Or you could go to Eastern and Central Europe and see lots and lots of reforms. You could go to 16 countries, not all of them in Eastern and Central Europe, but many of them are, with flat tax rates. Simple, flat, fair, beneficial for education and work. So that's just a handful of examples of countries that passed these obstacles, that launched the free market reforms, saw the astonishing positive economic and social results, and obviously they could do it politically, so it is possible. So the pessimism about the political incentives to do reforms are uh, partly founded by myths. 
in my view. I think, first of all, one myth is that you need an economic crisis to be able to launch free market reforms and have a mandate to change. That's not true. A number of these countries have actually launched reforms in good times, such as Australia and Sweden, Netherlands, and some of the countries that had a serious crisis actually went in the opposite direction, became more protectionist, etc. So a crisis does not normally lead to, to uh, more reforms. So that's a myth. Another myth is that the socially excluded are the ones to lose most from, from free market reforms. That's not true. These are normally the groups that benefit the most because it's the people who don't have jobs who get the new jobs. It's the people who are not allowed to make a choice in healthcare who are allowed to make the choice in healthcare. It's the people with the lowest incomes that get the highest income increases normally. And I have lots and lots of empirical evidence showing that. A third myth is that you don't get re-elected. Well, that is fortunately not true. Because uh, in the dozen OECD countries that have reformed the most, the reformed governments have been re-elected in all those countries except one in my home country, Sweden. The most reformist government was not re-elected. But in all the others, they have been re-elected at least once. So there should be political incentives. And there are a few opportunities as well that are sometimes overlooked. Normally, even if the opposition wins the election, sooner or later they might do that, and they have opposed the reforms all the way, and they come to power, they normally don't roll back reforms anyway. They leave them in place because people might oppose reforms before they happen, but they like them when they have happened, when they see the effects. So the reforms are not rolled back. Another opportunity I think sometimes overlooked is the fact that uh, one wave of successful reforms often leads to another wave. Because if you manage to launch one wave with good results and you get re-elected, you can continue. So you get into a positive development spiral for the country. Another opportunity is that the so-called impossible areas, the areas that are uh, sometimes called unreformable, they are reformable. It has been said that, okay, okay, we can reform, we can deregulate product markets, we can decrease some taxes, etc., but we cannot reform pensions and healthcare. Well, that's not true because countries have reformed pensions and healthcare in a free market direction. So I conclude in the book with what is actually making reforms possible if you look at these countries and research. There are a few frameworks that facilitate reforms. First of all, there are a number of constitutional aspects, of course, and one such aspect is the degree of, of uh, decentralization in the country. If you have a decentralized political decision-making where member states or, or regions are allowed to make choices to a large extent by themselves, there will be institutional competition within the country between the regions, and that will improve political decisions. Social pacts, <clears throat> that is... You may have a social pact between the employers and the trade unions and they, that they will not accept reforms. But then if one changes their position, the social pact might be a totally different one. In New Zealand, for instance, the business organization went from being protectionist to becoming uh, for free trade, and that opened up all the possibilities to do the reforms. In Ireland, the trade unions opposed reforms, and then they changed their mind, and they were for tax cuts, and reforms took place. A sound macroeconomic framework is another framework that I would say is very important to have in place. That is, uh, if you have macroeconomic crisis with inflation and deficits, etc., all the time, people will have to focus all their attention to that. 
But if you have that soundly in place with low inflation, low deficits, etc., politicians can actually focus more on the structural reforms that are necessary to do. Another framework is, is the importance of independent ideas. Because you can say a lot about politicians. Um, I have a lot of respect for Dick Army naturally, of course. Politicians are good at many things. They can, uh, they can argue for proposals, they can fight for proposals, they can decide and they can implement, etc. But to a large extent, they don't come up with the re reform ideas by themselves. It, they don't just get into politicians' heads. Sometimes they come from a scholar. Sometimes they come from an institute. Sometimes they come from, from an independent author. You need to have a, a society vibrant with lots and lots of independent ideas so that uh, one or two or three of these can get into politics and the programs and the propositions. Uh, last framework is a transparent decision-making, which uh, makes it harder for politicians to make stupid decisions or actually to benefit just one special interest at the expense of everyone else. But then you might say, well, a government cannot actually do much to these frameworks. The government cannot easily change the constitution and improve that, and that's true. But you have to actually, I think, know at least that these frameworks are beneficial for reform. But there are a number of also strategic components to sum up that uh, a government could consider. First of all, you need a mandate to reform. You cannot reform by stealth, as France has attempted a number of times. That is, if you say nothing before the election, and then after the election you try to do something, people will protest, there will be demonstrators everywhere, and you will not have the opportunity to actually launch the reforms. You have to tell the people before the election that you want to do something, and then you will have the mandate to do it. And that's not as impossible as it sounds. Even in France, the unreformable country number one, Nicolas Sarkozy actually won the election by promising reforms, which were also quite precise. So you need a mandate. Secondly, I think you need very well-prepared proposals so that you can launch them early and quickly. You have to be prepared before the election. You cannot start preparing afterwards. You have to have well-prepared proposals so that you can launch them quickly because you have to launch proposals quickly after the election so that the good effects come in good time before the next election. And as a politician, you have, of course, you have to be very decisive. I think the governments that did the most free market reforms uh, have been because you have to realize that there will be opponents. There will be demonstrators. There will be special interests that, that protest against your proposals. You have to be prepared for that and stay the course anyway because you have to realize they don't speak for the general interest, for the public interest. They speak for the special interest. It is the reforms that are in the public interest. And then I think um, reforms have to have a, a certain size. They, don't have, they cannot be too small or watered down because they have to be big enough to produce big results before the next election. I also think uh, governments have to communicate in a consistent way. They have to, if they launch change, they have to talk for change. They cannot launch change and talk for, for remaining as we always have been, as Gerhard Schröder in Germany did. He lost the election, by the way. He launched a few reforms and said, oh, we have to do this because Germany is going to be the way it has always been. Well, the problem with that was that it's inconsistent. People are confused. People don't know where to go. Roger Douglas, finance minister of New Zealand, said, let the dog see the rabbit. 
which means that uh, if you point in a direction where you want to go, people are likely to actually follow you. But then <clears throat> you have a mandate, you have decided, and you have won the battle for reforms. I think that uh, it's not finished there. You have the implementation part left. You have to actually implement the decision, which is uh, harder than, than you might believe. Um, I talked to the former Italian Minister of Labour, Maurizio Sacconi, and he, uh, they, they decided about uh, this labour market deregulation in Italy and uh, in Rome, and uh, very little happened. And, uh, well, they wondered why, and it was because the civil servants didn't actually implement the decision. And the regions of Italy implemented it quite differently. So you have to secure implementation as well. And even after implementation, it's not finished, of course, because then you have to win the story of reforms, which means that uh, you cannot allow the opponents of reform to win the battle of communication afterwards, because then they will say that the reform was terrible, the socially excluded lost, there were adverse effects everywhere, etc., etc. You have to win the story afterwards, saying it was important to launch the reform, it produced good results, and now we want the mandate to do more. And this is the way to actually get the mandate to do more reforms. So that's a few strategic lessons, I think, from the reform countries and from research. And uh, so I would like to get back to Jean-Claude Juncker when I conclude, just to show that uh, actually we know what to do, and we know a lot about how to do it. And just to paraphrase a very famous trademark, I'd like to say, just do it. Thank you. Thank you, Johnny. Thank you so much for coming to Cato. And uh, also, thank you for writing what I think is truly a remarkable and very important book. Now, not to bash Hillary Clinton too much, but um, watching television uh, about a week ago, I saw Hillary say something along the lines, uh, I want this country to be more like Scandinavia. <laughs> and if she meant by Scandinavia the way you presented Scandinavia as a uh, part of the world where the Swedish people can put part of their savings into private savings accounts for their retirement, as a place in the world where the Norwegian uh, children can go to schools of uh, their choice and their parents' choice, as Denmark, which has a remarkably open uh, labor market. Well, in that case, I think that Hillary is onto something. We should be more like Scandinavia. But to tell us more about his time reforming or trying to reform the American government, I'm delighted to welcome to the Cato Institute Dick Army. Dick Army was born in, uh, on July 7, 1914, Kando, North, North Dakota. He went on to earn a bachelor's degree from Jamestown College and uh, Jamestown College, a master's degree at the University of North Dakota, and a PhD in economics from University of Oklahoma. He then taught economics for 13 years at the University of North Texas, and I would like to believe that that was the formative experience which made him into a libertarian. First elected to Congress in 1984, Army soon passed legislation that helped to close obsolete military bases, saving the taxpayer $4 billion a year. In 1984, Army was, of course, the main author of Contract with America, contract which helped Republicans take control of the House for the first time in 40 years, and Dick Army became the majority leader. 
For 18 years in the House of Representatives, the Army fought tirelessly for low taxes, less government, and more freedom. And today he serves as chairman of Freedom Works and leads the same political revolution at the grassroots level. It gives me real pleasure to welcome you to Cato. Thank you. Let me just say, first of all, it's always a pleasure to be back here at Cato. And let me compliment our guest author. Uh, this is a big subject, and it'd be uh, remarkable indeed if anybody, one, covered it all, or two, got it all right. But I think you've done the better, uh, better job of it. I'm just going to give a few reflections on it. Uh, it really boils down to Howard Rourke's speech to the jury. It's about the collective versus the individual. It can be, uh, you can express this any other ways, the state against the individual, freedom versus governance. But it's really all about who's going to be in charge here. And are we going to respect one another? Or are we going to be controlling? And it fascinates me because for politicians, and politicians are juvenile delinquents, you must understand this. There is nothing commendable about politicians. The practice of politics is, is of itself juvenile delinquency. It's about me now. And the last time you corrected your child and said, quit being so childish, you said, quit being about me now. And so I use, by the way, I use the English language with a certain amount of respect and rigor. I am very disdainful of the Duke University English Department deconstructionism. I know what the meaning of the word is, is, and I say exactly what the heck I mean. Uh, and when I say politicians are juvenile delinquents, I mean this from the depths of my heart. Bless their poor little hearts, they can't help themselves. So you have to understand something about this. People say, explain to me what goes on in Washington. I can't because I don't have an advanced degree in developmental psychology. But I do the best I can. And studying this question of who comes down on the part of statism, who comes down on the part of liberty, is all reflected in a question related to who do you want to love you? The fact is we all want to be loved. My wife used to scold me for 18 years. She scolded me for being a Republican. She told me, you have any idea how unsatisfying it is to be married to a Republican member of Congress? <laughs> the Democrats party with movie stars. You guys party with CPAs. <laughs> I once developed a speech which I entitled The Seven Talking Professions. Theologians, academics, politicians, legal profession. I'm wondering, am I going to get them all? Oh, the press. That's five, right? Who have I left out? They all make their living by uh, talk. They all wrap themselves in all kinds of ceremonial accoutrements. Uh, they, none of them live with the consequences of their own ideas. Huh? Mortgage bankers, maybe. Uh, uh, and uh, they're all romantic uh, in that they, they don't have any reality test against which they must uh, live out their ideas. 
And they fascinate me because these romantics constitute the population that I will describe as the beautiful people. I once was asked by somebody to give me a reason why I was so uh, seriously disappointed in President George Herbert Walker Bush. I didn't have any idea how minimal my disappointment was until we got President George W. Bush. But at any rate... I I said my biggest problem with George Herbert Walker Bush was he so desperately wanted to be loved by the beautiful people. And I remember saying to Newt one time, Newt Ginrich, I said, Newt, every time you get in trouble, it's because you want to be loved by somebody. I said, why don't you accept it like I do? I'm just not lovable. And I say, I tell you, tell Republican candidates for Congress. If you're going to run for Congress as a Republican, Mary Steenburgen is not going to kiss you in public. Give it up. It's just not going to happen. Because the beautiful people have aligned themselves with statism through this sort of romanticism that comes from the fact that they live by ideas, the consequences of which never touch their own life. Well, this is another thing. The beautiful people, the seven talking professions, make their living by pretending to be somebody they're not. You say, People say, why don't you admire movie actors? What the hell am I talking about? Some person that makes his living pretending to be me? Hell, I don't even pretend to be me. <laughs> you know, that's to be respected? They say, well, you should have more respect for professors. This is a person that's devoted their entire adult life to living in a child's institution. Now, how am I supposed to be excited by this? You know, but you can indulge yourself with all the romance. Now, what they do is they create then sort of a culture of collectivist romanticism. And the office holder wants to be included. Now, you ask yourself, you're in office. I finally got elected to Congress. Now, who do I want to party with? I remember talking, I was doing something, a little old thing about the National Endowment for the Arts, which, by the way, was first and, fomo, first and foremost an intrusion against freedom for artists, for the state to determine what should or should not be ex- acceptable art. And I went to a friend of mine from uh, New York. I said, uh, you know, can I get your vote on this? Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> you don't understand. My wife is the president of the Arts League back home cracked me up because somebody asked me just within minutes, are you going to get his vote? One of the greatest Freudian slip of my years in Congress. You're going to get his vote? I said, not in this lifetime. <laughs> now, the problem is you get an enormous amount of applause from the New York Times uh, uh, editorial page. If you're really bad at what you do, doing bad things, they'll make a movie about you. And they'll celebrate you. So there's this, what I used to call this romantic bureaucratic symbiosis among the talking professions. And so there's a natural draw for people in public office. I finally got myself a landing spot where I can be noticed and possibly even celebrated in popular culture. Now, how are you going to do that? You're going to swing with popular culture. Now, the problem is they build the state. There's a consistent pattern. I mean, I always crack me up. Bill Clinton, in order to get get some peace, and I can't tell you how much Bill Clinton just desperately wanted to be able to come home and have a little peace. And uh, he put Mrs. Clinton, 
his wife, an unelected person, in charge of health care. She runs right out, goes to the nearest university, Brown University, which is an abject failure at anything academic, uh, and says, who created this marvelous place where everybody feels so good about themselves? Which is what Barack, by the way, is promising you today. That's the change that you will get. You will wake up the day after he's elected and feel better about yourself. It's going to be a national therapy session. <laughs> but you understand these superficial things govern a lot of behavior. Govern behavior of voters and govern politicians in office in pursuit of a claim. And so this is sort of the national psychosis that you're having to cope against. So what does she do? She goes out and gets Ira Magaziner, the guy who created the Brown University curriculum, a man who's made a lifetime's career building complex systems that don't work. He's a perfect person for this job. Now what happened, and here we finally get to where we can win. You and I get to win. Because Hillary built a system that was so big and scary that all of a sudden real people who didn't sit around and be romantic about the collective got the hell scared out of them. People say, how did you guys turn it around in 1995? Bill, Hillary Clinton and Ira Magazina built a stage of public concern and worry. My gosh, these people are going to go crazy. Look at the thing they're going to do. And Newt Gingrich and Dick Armey climbed up on the stage with a plan. So I'm going to suggest to you, take a look at the reform you see in Europe. It's where statism has become so huge, so inoperable, so ineffective, so burdensome, that the public at large outcries the beautiful people, the elitists, who, of course, I mean, I remember our college professor, theology professor, uh, in a school I taught years ago, he said uh, he loved India because in India the academics were esteemed. I don't know what else they were accomplishing, but it was a great place for him. I said, well, why don't you go live in India then, you know? But the fact of the matter is, uh, what happens is, the, the beautiful people, you take a look at the seven text talking professions, if I had rounded them up, they're the people who prosper within this system of statism. And they keep the romantic dream alive in their own self-interests. And the public at large just struggles against it until they get the health scared out of them. I had a good friend from Taiwan. He used to be very frustrated with we Americans. And I remember one day he looked at me, he said, Dick, he said, you know, the problem with you Americans is you don't know how evil communism is. But when Eastern Europe uh, Europeans got a chance to be free, they quickly dismantled the overbearing state, made themselves free, and allowed themselves to begin to enjoy the... Uh, uh, what we call the uh, blessings of liberty. So I'm going to suggest to you that where we are is in order to defeat statism and roll it back, you must first allow it to get to a level of such onerous punishment that real people outcry the romantics. Now, where does a politician fit in here? I used to say, when we were, uh, when we were kind of having some good days in the house, 
I, I'm more scared to vote no and go home and face the people in my district than I am to vote yes uh, and, and face uh, the uh, establishment here in D.C. On the subject of NRA, that was always an easy one for me. It didn't take a genius to figure out if you got a choice between being on the side of the guy who has a gun and the guy who doesn't have a gun, be on the side of the guy with the gun. Hell, I mean, even I could figure that out. Uh, but in a sense, what happens when the public then raises itself in concern about this oppressive, big, romantic state isn't working and it is depressing my ability to do the things I must do for my family, they rise up and the politician all of a sudden says, oh, wait a minute. As much as I want to be loved by the professors and the editorial board and maybe even have a movie made about me, I would rather dare to go home and face my neighbors who are now making their expression. I believe in the final analysis. I said this about the flat tax when we reintroduced uh, re, re, uh, it in 1994. Uh, I, we will have a flat tax in America when America beats Washington. The beautiful people are for tax complexity. Uh, the real people have to finally say, enough already. Now, uh, the other thing is you've got to understand about politicians. They live their life by their worst fears. They're the biggest bunch of damn cowards I've ever known in my life. They used to stand around. I used to crack me up. I'd watch my friends on the... I had a guy from Minnesota. You couldn't have blasted him out of his seat in Congress with dynamite. He's standing. I always had, you always tell the nervous Nellies what I call the Bedwetters Caucus. They have a voting card. They'd stand there like this, reading the board. I want to see how everybody else is... Did, did, were they looking for people who think like I think, and how did they vote? No, they were thinking, were there people whose constituencies overlap with mine and share information with mine? How are people in my neighborhood voting? And I walked up to him, I said, you know, it's clear, it's obvious, the correct vote is yes. He said, I know it is, Nick, I know it's correct, but people back home just might not understand. I said, how in the heck do you figure they're smart enough to elect you but too dumb to understand the issues? You know, but their fear is a very governing thing. And you take Social Security today. This is the biggest public policy issue that faces America in our generation. And it is plagued. And by the way, 99% of all office holders are either Republicans or Democrats in the United States. So you can narrow this down pretty easy. Social Security is replaced by Republicans that don't dare and Democrats that don't care. Dick Gephardt says Social Security has been one of the greatest programs in the history of the country. Damn great for the Democrats. It's been their political bread and butter. I can understand Dick Gephardt's great affection for the program. And the Republicans have said, what? It's the third rail. They don't dare. Dick Gephardt says, I want my party to continue to prosper over this big government program in terms of the ballot box. Republicans say, I don't want to get burned by that, so I'll leave it alone. So you need then an innovator. We did this with, social, with, with uh, welfare reform, and by comparison to Social Security reform, the welfare reform we did in the 90s, right after we took the majority, is a small thing, but it has within it a big lesson. 
if you want to deconstruct the, uh, the uh, overblown state of government, big government programs, roll it back, then succeed. Bill Clinton vetoed welfare reform twice. Every Democrat, including Bill Clinton, said the Republicans are going to take food out of the mouths of babies and starve grandmas. But we did it. We persevered. We dared to stick with it. We saw it through. And when the program was implemented, it resulted in Bill Clinton at the time of his departure from the presidency saying it was the best idea he ever had. Because if it is the right idea, it will work. But it cannot work, and now you see it through. Now, we have entrepreneurial people in our legislative bodies who would dare to take on the big programs. What they need is somebody there to say, we will love you more and better than you could ever hope to be loved by the beautiful people. So if you're looking for love, as the country song says, don't go looking in all the wrong places. Look for love at home and do the right thing, and we will show up. Now, if we don't show up, more is the pity for us, because they won't dare. And I would say that we've had periods of times when we've had the legislative entrepreneurs, Barry Goldwater, Ronald Reagan, uh, myself and Newt, I think, at a time, where we got all the love we needed to sustain us in doing the tougher job from the real people who lived with the consequences of our work. The romantics did not like us. I'm proud to tell you I have never fit in in Washington, D.C. That has never bothered me one bit. But you have to understand that's an extraordinary people. Army's axiom is you can't hurt a man that don't give a damn. People in office do not understand the therapeutic value of not giving a damn, and they sit around and worry all day long. And they covet the affections of the wrong people. Now, how do you discipline them out of that? And, and so finally, I'll close with this. I think we've seen change in Europe. I think, why is Sweden coming to its senses? Because Sweden has been overburdened with big state. Why is Eastern Europe so sensible? Because they've had to live with the oppression of big state in the extreme. I would say that sets the model. In the United States, we're not there yet, and finally. I believe that if the Democrats hold the House and the Senate, and either Mrs. Clinton, Senator Clinton, who knows damn good and well what she wants to do to America, or Barack Obama, who will simply do what the liberal Congress asks him to do, because his, his, emotionally he's never got beyond the idea that if you elect me, you're going to feel better about yourself. He's never had a serious thought yet. Uh, but he, so he will be led. Either one of them, I believe, is able to take America over the hump to where the burden of big government becomes so oppressive that there will be a reform spirit among the people at large in this country to fix this damn thing. Uh, it's going to be a very painful time. My analogy is the private sector of the economy, you and me in our homes, uh, in our communities, doing what we can for our families. We're like a hiker with a big backpack, 
and that backpack is full of rocks, and that ro those, each rock's got the name of a government program on it. And the beauty of the American economy, the American private sector, we have been resilient enough to carry that pack no matter what they threw in the back. But any hiker will eventually have his legs buckle. And I believe either President Obama with a Democrat Congress or President Clinton with a Democrat Congress can add that margin of new rocks that causes the private sector's legs to buckle, and then you will see a reform spirit in America. And if we're going to have reformers, we better not wait for them. There are a few naturals. We've been lucky to see a few. But you cannot let politicians be what they will be by their own devices. You must make of them what you require them to be. And that sometimes means a lot of tough luck and harsh punishment. I'm, I'm, uh, I have been very punitive to a lot of Republicans. I punish politicians that disappoint me. I've never been disappointed by a Democrat. And the reason is obvious. Well, I hope that's helpful. I mean, it's sort of my ramblings and so forth, but uh, it's just kind of the social psychology of the thing, that phenomena, it just fascinates me to watch these people at work, so. Thank you. Thank you very much. Now, I know that you have to go and do a TV interview in about five minutes, so do you want to take a minute or two of rebuttal, or should we take questions? Okay. Uh, are there any questions in the audience specifically for the Garmi, who, as I said, uh, has to leave very quickly. And if you could make it short and in a form of a question, please. Yes, sir. Who are the reformers? Who are the reformers? Well, the best of the bunch is Jeff Flake, Jeb Henserling. We got some real good guys in the Senate. Uh, 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 the South Carolina's Dement, uh, the fellow from New Hampshire. We, despite his daddy, we ought to keep him. You have to help me with names. I'm, <laughs> like Junior Brown, I'm not so good with names and addresses. But uh, So we have, they call themselves the Republican Study Committee, and about half of them are real people, <laughs> real guys. I mean, you know, they, they, in Hebrew, they have a wonderful word called mensch. I look at people and I say, that's a mensch. And, uh, you know, quite frankly, and as it is in every population, by the way, a mensch is a special person. But about half of the Republican Study Committee in the House, if you look at their role, are real guys. They're real people. Uh, and, and by the way, in this case, mensch or guy is a gender-neutral uh, term because Marsha Blackburn, for example, from Tennessee is a real mensch. I'm sure that I'm in all kinds of PC prob trouble here, but the good thing about <laughs> me Not at case is now. I don't give a damn. <laughs> okay. Yes. Let's take one more over here. Give you the repeal. Uh, we, labor reform came up a couple of times today. Um, one of the first things that they're going to do is repeal the um, right to work exception from Taft Hartley. So uh, I'm going to give you a chance to say whether that's the kind of thing that wakes up ordinary people because they really hadn't thought about that before. Yeah, I think, and of course, one of the problems is. And here's where Cato, I think, is a big help. People don't understand liberty very well. Uh, you know, for example, I would argue that anybody that passes a law or allows a law or allows a regulation to impose on me the requirement to join an organization in order to have a job 
is disregarding my personal liberty and should be, uh, uh, should be uh, uh, resisted. Uh, why is it that we accept that in this con uh, country, at the age of 65, you are forced to acquire your health care through the government? And we just don't see this as a question of our liberty. I, when I said, I do not want to enroll in Medicare, the response I got from 99% of all the people I ever said, I said, well, why not? You've already paid for it. It's not about the money. I, mean, I, I never objected to the, that part of the FICA payroll tax in all the years I worked and paid in. What I objected to is that I'm not free to choose for myself whether I'll pay for my health care this way or that way. My mama used to pay for it with a dead chicken, for crying out loud. <laughs> you know, today, the poor old doctor that took that dead chicken would have all kinds of punishments from the federal government. Where the hell is liberty in all that mix? So our problem is, the, the you know, Army's axiom is the politics of greed, and in politics, greed is mostly about power, not money. Uh, the politics of greed is always wrapped in the language of love. And, 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 and we need people to give better definition to liberty and, and have it better understood. It is confused. It is confused by popular media. And so what happens, for example, I mean, you know, I was kidding. Newt, Newt was a historian. I, by the way, I, I have not a bad feeling about Newt Gingrich. I think we were dang lucky to have had him. He was a national thinker. Uh, sure, he could frustrate us all. But I, he was a historian, and he loved wallowing around as a historian. I said, you know, I'm telling everybody I know that you were the sort of the historical consultant to the last Oliver Stone picture. And it used to concern him a great deal because popular culture, people, there are, there's a whole generation of Americans today that think they understand the Kennedy assassination from an Oliver Stone movie. And so you have to be very careful in terms of giving definition to liberty, recognizing you're going against an onslaught of romanticized misinformation that serves a purpose. I used to think deconstructionism was just some kind of romantic sort of kidding around among academics. You know, they're kind of meaningless for the most part anyway. Uh, and then all of a sudden I saw Clinton in the White House, and I thought deconstructionism's a political tool. <clears throat> so all of this romantic nonsense that affects our children, I, I tell my friends now, raise your children with a good deal of loving rigor because... When they leave your house, most often at the tender age of 19, 90% of the information they get about the world they live in will be from an unreliable source. <laughs> Last question over there. You know, uh, one of the things that was in the contract for America was uh, term limits. Do you think on reflection that it would have been something that freed up politicians to not have to worry about getting reelected? No, I kind of watched the term limits, and, you know, I mean, even Doc Coburn came back and ran for the Senate. You know, so basically, what you, we did term limits on committee chairs, which I thought is where we really needed it, to keep committee chairs from having fiefdoms. But they just moved around from committee to committee. Uh, uh, I, 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 don't, I don't see term limits as a very effective tool. Uh, the, the tool is... And I, I look at America, and I believe democracy works. 
And I believe that if you have, by and large, a complacent and indifferent voting constituency, you will get, by and large, a complacent and indifferent Congress. And that's why I am such a fan and advocate of activism. We got to get on the field. We got to get in their face. We, I, I always think we should be well-mannered about it. We need to assert ourselves. Nobody who holds public office should ever be allowed to be what they will be of their own devices. Because for the most part, they won't hold up well. You've heard this Potomac fever. We got names for all of this backsliders, wine, and so forth. People come to, I have a host of young people you ask uh, who the good guys are. Uh, and I'm blessed to tell you that people like Jeb Henserling and Pence and these guys, they've turned to me and they said, you know, you came here, you stayed in office for 18 years, you left the same guy you were when you come. Will you help us to understand how to do? They know the threat, even the best of them. I can that I can live in this town and eventually learn to fit in, and then I will have lost me and me. Now that's a high degree of awareness. <clears throat> that is an extremely high degree of awareness. I would say if 15 percent the members of Congress have that much introspective thinking, I would be surprised. <laughs> Introspection, by the way, is not something an unexamined life for you young people. An unexamined life is not worth living. You better figure out who the hell you are, how you got to be that way. Do you like yourself and you want to stay that way? And let me, uh, I got to go, but let me give you a place to begin. What do you love more, peace or freedom? Because if you love peace more than freedom, you're going to be instantaneously popular with the beautiful people, but you'll never amount to a damn thing. But it'll feel good. So I got to go. All right. (laughs) All right, uh, Jenny, you wanted to make a few comments, and then we'll open it, then we'll return. To- well, I actually wanted to thank Dick Army before he left for his uh, very interesting comments, and I apparently had the chance to do that. Thank you. Um, and also say that um, <clears throat> just a few comments regarding the, the content of those comments. I think uh, Dick was perhaps a bit uh, pessimistic about the friends of right-wing politicians. I know that uh, Clint Eastwood is surely a libertarian, and... Uh, the right-wing French president Sarkozy just married the former girlfriend of Mick Jagger. So uh, it shouldn't be p- impossible to be a right-wing reformist politician and have beautiful friends. But uh, I think there's more to it than that, because Dick Armey commented a lot about the political, the character of the politicians, which is always, of course, fascinating and interesting. Um, I... I don't do that at all in my book because I think that that's, that's just a given. I would like to say that uh, we know what politicians are like. Some are very strong, some are very principled, some are very tactic, some are just uh, out there for compromise. Some, are, You know, there, there's all kinds. What I would like to do with my book is to say that, okay, that's a given. Politicians are the way they are. But given that, can we get politicians to do more reforms than they're currently doing? by showing them that it is actually not only economically and socially beneficial, but also politically beneficial. Because that would mean that not only the political superman we have from time to time, who, who of course will launch reforms regardless, but also the mediocre politicians and the tactic politicians and the 
well, any politician might actually do a lot of reforms. So that you don't have to be a political superman to launch reforms. You can be just an ordinary, mediocre politician if you just know how to do it. And that's what I try to describe using drawing on examples from all of these reformist countries. And I think that's possibly one of the most important lessons in how to inspire politicians, also the mediocre ones, to do reforms. Um, And I think also uh, Dick's other point about uh, if you have more problems by the burden of government, then you will also have more reforms. I think it is still probably true that, well, you have to have problems to have reforms. But on the other hand, there's never an ideal society, so every country will always need reforms. But uh, it's not certain that the degree of problems will actually determine the degree of reforms, because several countries have had enormous problems and still not reformed. Argentina was one of the wealthiest countries in the world in 1930, and then it got the Peronists in government with a very statist, protectionist government, became a much more unsuccessful society, voted the Peronists back again and back again and back again, and they launched more and more terrible policies. And Argentina in 1970 was certainly not one of the wealthiest countries in the world. So problems don't always lead to uh, reforms. You have to have more than that. You have to have some some politicians in place that realize uh, what to do and how to do it. And uh, there are many lessons about how to do it, uh, regardless of whether you're a political superman or just an ordinary politician. All right, let's open it up to questions for Johnny. Before we go there, let me ask you. So in in Argentina, it it was really the narrative after the reforms that taken place that consistently failed to convince the public, right? I mean, even in the 1990s, there, there have been reforms, but uh, somehow the free market is still blamed for, uh, uh, for the collapse in 2000. <clears throat> yes, that's definitely one case of uh, failing in, in winning the story of reform, definitely, I'd say. Uh, and that has happened in many other countries as well, because look at Sweden. The only example in the OECD countries where a reform government was not re-elected that government launched a number of free market reforms which has benefited us enormously uh, after that, but it was not re-elected because the, their period of governing coincided with an enormous recession, mm-hmm. which means that people confused the reforms with the recession, meaning that uh, people thought that if you do like that, you'll get recession, which was completely wrong, of course, but uh, that was the mentality. And, and we lost for, for 15 years, I think, the, the battle of reforms and the story of reforms. And so you, you definitely have to, have to win that uh, afterwards to be able to uh, launch more successful reforms. Okay, one or two more questions. Yes, let's take those two. I guess. Uh, it, it it's on. I I have trouble when I hear discussions that involve large numbers of abstract words that have broad definitions, and I think we've heard a lot of them. But two that I'm particularly interested, if you could comment a little bit more, would be democracy and transparency. Well, uh, of course, there are many uh, different democratic systems throughout the world, and uh, I don't know if I've talked much about democracy, but I think that... uh, of course, every country has their democratic tradition if, you, if you're a democracy, and there are many differences. The United States, of course, is a federation with uh, checks and balances, where Sweden is a small country with a parliamentary democracy, and there are presidential, you know, there are differences, definitely. 
I think that uh, there are definitions about the common denominators of a democracy. It's the it's right to vote, it's the right to form parties, it's the right to form organizations, it's the freedom of speech and press, etc. It's some, some basic things that uh, are in common between all the democracies. And I think that uh, for lessons from one country to be relevant for another, the countries have to be fairly similar. And that is why I've chosen, firstly, only to compare democracies, Secondly, only to compare countries that have roughly the same level of uh, wealth, uh, prosperity. Which means that, uh, well, that's, that ends up in the 30 OECD countries because the, those are the comparable groups. And the transparency uh, is, uh, well, you, you could discuss that, but uh, the, the point was that uh, transparent decision-making makes it easier for politicians to, to make decisions for the general good instead of making some, some concessions, granting privileges or pork for, for some special interests. And transparency in that sense means, of course, that, politi- that people can see what has been decided and that the media can exert some, some uh, scrutiny on, on the way decisions are made. Last uh, question over there, and so the last one in the front of Thanks. Uh, hi, my name is John Lebohm. I uh, blog at, um, <clears throat> excuse me, an election analysis blog called Election Dissection. So from that perspective, um, you addressed it a little bit just now, but are there any sort of electoral or legislative systems that have an impact on, well, through which that the political culture, the change in political culture you're talking about need to be mediated? Uh, Congressman Army talked about, um, you know, home districts, constituencies, that it might be more market or amenable to market reforms and others that might resist it. Um, how does that compare to a party list system or say in some of those Scandinavian countries, very market liberal parties have been in uh, coalitions with sort of conservative agrarian parties that weren't as mm-hmm. open to this. Is, are there any sort of lessons that you've learned from your analysis of all this? First of all, I think he had a very good point about uh, the, the need to appeal to the general public instead of look, just trying to appeal to certain elites or special interests, because that is when it always goes wrong. And after all, the people are, are uh, <laughs> since it's one person, one vote, uh, the people have more votes than the, the few elites at universities or the media or, or even the, the fame business. But uh, coming to electoral systems, I think that I had one comment regarding constitutions. Uh, of course, constitutions that limit the scope of government uh, will, will, of course, uh, contribute to a more free market society. And constitutions that grant uh, more sovereignty to regions or member states in a federation, for instance, like, like the US, or, or better still in Switzerland, will lead to more uh, institutional competition between the regions or member states, and thereby, when they're competing, of course, they will improve policies all the time. I think also there's evidence that uh, first-past-the-post-electoral systems will create stronger majority governments, uh, which means that it's easier for the governments to actually have their policies come, come through. Another point that I usually make about this is that uh, I think that the desire in politics to sometimes have very broad coalitions, like in Germany at the moment, with uh, both the left and right in government, just to make sure that uh, if you do... Well, the idea is that if you have a very narrow majority and you push through reforms, then the opposition might come into power after the next election and roll all the reforms back. And therefore, you should have a very broad coalition. The problem is that the broad coalition is normally totally incapable of action at all, which we see in Germany now. 
And the second thing is that oppositions, when they come into power, they don't roll back reforms. So you should have a narrow majority and push through whatever you can do because they won't roll it back. All right. Very last question here. Yes, my name is Bert Gorowski. I'd like to make a question on the storytelling part of it all. Uh, what suggestions do you have in terms of how to tell the story of success? Because one of the challenges is that arguing for individualism is sort of a slightly taken as more arrogant and more highly than arguing for the group. Uh, what, what, what have you thought about Okay. Making the story better. Mm. Well, I think that's, uh, of course, the topic of uh, entire books, uh, book series, uh, which is a very important issue and, uh, of course, something which is on the mind of uh, all the Cato staff all the time and surely many other think tanks. Uh, I think there are several lessons to be drawn. I think it has to be shown clearly that free market policies definitely lead to better social outcomes than any socialism or, or central planned economy ha has ever done, and proving that. Uh, secondly, I think uh, it, it, we should take, uh, well, a normal person's, an underdog perspective in the arguments, uh, and we should also be more anecdotal, like the left has always been, because they, they have only the anecdotes. We have all the statistics and facts and research, too, but sometimes we're too focused in just showing the research and facts and figures. We should also have the anecdotes that uh, make our stories more, more vivid and, and lively. Uh, so that's a few thoughts I have on that. And, of course, uh, the, the idea by, of writing a book uh, as mine is to spread uh, the, those lessons uh, in, a, in a way which will convince more people, essentially. And I hope that I have done that in a way which is uh, at least partly going to be successful. Certainly have. Thank you very much once again. Um, Johnny's book, The Guide to Reform, is on sale outside, and uh, Johnny is going to be around for a little while to answer any of the questions that you might have upstairs, uh, where you are all welcome to join us for food and drink. Thank you very much for coming. Thank you, Johnny. Thank you. Thank you.